1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. by my breathing. I didn't want to like hurt your ears. Uh, But let me say uh, just a happy Sunday to you. And uh, especially to those of you who are wearing light blue t-shirts today, uh, who are part of summer camp 2021 party. Uh, It was so much fun uh, that I got to spend some time with y'all this week um, laughing outside, watching people get pies thrown in their faces. Um, Hanging out over there uh, in, while we were eating meals and stuff. Um, so to all of you in light blue shirts, let me just say I'm so glad uh, that you guys got to do that this week. I'm so glad I got to spend a little bit of time with you. But if I could just say this for one second, can I like just kind of put a little like pause for one second and say, you know who we should really recognize for one moment is all of the adults who sacrificed time and energy, um, who took time off work, who made all kinds of sacrifices um, in weeks and months leading up to this camp to make all that, that fun stuff happen, who made sacrifices during this week um, of sleep so that while middle school boys were playing soccer in the gym at 1.30, that was possible because adults were here at the, <laughs> in the gym with you playing soccer at 1.30. When, when cool things were happening, it was because a whole bunch of people sacrificed a whole bunch of time to make that happen. And here at Redeemer, we just, we love to celebrate the value of servanthood. And so could I just ask if you were an adult who invested time, could I just ask you to do the like embarrassing thing? Could you just stand up? And if you're wearing a light blue shirt, you should especially be giving loud thanks to God for these people and everybody else. Can we just express our appreciation for them and for their sacrifice and investment? Thanks so much. Y'all are heroes uh, for a lot of reasons. Well, maybe it feels um, like a little bit of a shift in gears, but we're returning to our sermon series in First Thessalonians. We're learning about the basics of the Christian faith. The book of First Thessalonians is one of the earliest uh, books of the New Testament, one of the earliest written books in the New Testament. It was written to a church that had just been planted somewhere around the year A.D. 50 or maybe 49 or 51, but somewhere around the year A.D. 50, this local church was planted in the city of Thessalonica, known as Thessaloniki in the nation of Greece today. And uh, just a few months after this church was planted, The missionary team who helped to plant and establish that church, which consisted of Paul, who we know as the Apostle Paul, and Silas, called Silvanus in the letter of 1 Thessalonians, um, and also Timothy, kind of their young ministry intern at that point. Uh, This missionary team is writing back to this church that was recently planted, recently established, and they're writing some instructions about the basics of the Christian faith. 
And so we've looked at things like basic Christian gratefulness, right? Because prayer and giving thanks to God is just appropriate, right? And we've talked about some of the basics here. We'll look at some other things. But here, at this point in the letter, we shift gears and we're talking today, as we're paying attention to what this letter has to say, we're paying attention to the topic of basic Christian sanctification, which is to say basic Christian holiness, which is to say basic Christian lifestyle. And as you heard, as Lisa was reading, this passage has a lot to say specifically about holiness as it relates to sex. I think it's fair to say that we live in a culture that idolizes Romantic love and sexual freedom and sexual fulfillment. <laughs> get an amen from a lot of people. Sex is viewed in our culture as the ultimate recreation. It's viewed as part of true happiness. It's viewed not even so much in our cultural dialogue. It's viewed not so much as, as a desire as it is viewed as a need. It's viewed increasingly as the key to understanding your own personal identity in our culture around us. The way our culture talks about sex and romantic love and sexual fulfillment and sexual freedom, the way our culture talks about these things has shifted rapidly and dramatically in the past 50 years. And with all of these changes, some people begin to wonder if following Jesus really works in today's world. Can you really follow Jesus? Can you really follow biblical teachings in today's culture? Does that even work? Or to put that question a different way, what is Christian discipleship in a culture that idolizes sex? What does Christian discipleship involve? What does Christian discipleship say in a culture with rapidly changing views of romantic love and sexual freedom and sexual fulfillment? Does the Bible's voice even speak to the kinds of questions we're facing and wrestling with and asking today. I think it's interesting to notice that this question was also deeply important for the members of the church in that city of Thessalonica who first received this letter. Because they also lived in a culture that idolized sex and sexual fulfillment. And I don't just mean that like metaphorically. Like literally they, they idolized sex and sexual fulfillment. If you and I could have visited the city of Thessalonica in the first century around the time that this letter was written, if we went for a walk around the center of the city where everybody walked through town, some of the things that we would see is, one of the things that we would notice is a large, beautiful temple with a large, beautiful, te- with a large, beautiful, like, statue kind of idol, like an image that you could look at and see. Idols aren't just kind of weird, vague ideas, right? If you walk through town, you would see this temple with a real statue of a goddess named Aphrodite, the patron goddess of prostitutes. And perhaps across the square from the temple to Aphrodite, we would notice a temple to Dionysius, a God whose blessings were associated with partying and not just kind of birthday parties like partying, partying. (laughs) Bacchus was his name in Roman culture. If we shared the details of the Dionysius Day Parade that went through town, the details would not be rated PG and so I'm not going to share them with you. This was a city that literally idolized sex and sexual fulfillment. Not only did they kind of idolize sex and sexual fulfillment, but if you grew up in the city of Thessalonica, all kinds of sexual pursuits were considered not just kind of okay if you keep it hidden, 
But all kinds of sexual pursuits were considered to be encouraged. If you were a man with any degree of wealth, your family would encourage and expect you to have not only a wife, but also a mistress, or perhaps multiple mistresses. Mistresses were expected, and beyond that, prostitution was promoted. So much so in their culture that maybe you've heard of a writer named Cicero. We've named a whole neighborhood after him here in the Chicago area. He's so famous, right? But a philosopher, an author named Cicero, who lived right around the time of Jesus, spoke about things like this. If you grew up in the city of Thessalonica in the first century, this is how you would think about things like sex and sexual fulfillment, or this is how your neighbors would have thought about it. He said, if anyone thinks that a young man should be forbidden to have affairs, even with prostitutes, he is very strict indeed. For his view is contrary not only to the law of the present age, but even with the habits of our ancestors and what they used to consider allowable. For when was this not a common practice? When was it blamed? When was it forbidden? When, in fact, did that which was lawful become that which was not lawful? You hear what, you hear what Cicero is saying, right? It's not just like some people have mistresses, but they should keep it quiet. It's not just some guys will go and find prostitutes, but try not to let other people know about it. These things were expected and endorsed so much so that if you joined a community of people who taught that God has a different design for your sexual life, than going and hooking up with prostitutes, your neighbors would say, well, that is very strict indeed. Your neighbors would say, that's contrary to our cultural customs. Your neighbors would say, since when is that a bad thing? And so we're right back to this question. What does Christian discipleship involve in a culture that idolizes sex and sexual fulfillment? First Thessalonians chapter four, verse three has an answer. The missionary team writing back to these young believers living in this culture that idolized sex and sexual fulfillment, the missionary team has this simple word of direction that you can see right there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification in this case refers to kind of becoming holy. All right, that's shorthand. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Do you hear how bold and countercultural that message is? Translated differently, just to make sure we hear the point. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse three, God's will for you, God's will is for you to be holy. So stay away from all sexual sin. That is very strict indeed. Neighbors are whispering. To hear it a little more directly from another translation. God wants you to live a pure life. Keep yourselves from sexual promiscuity. Even if all of your neighbors believe that this is the way that Everybody lives in the way that everybody should live. Even in a city or a culture that idolizes sex and sexual fulfillment, Christian discipleship calls for sexual holiness by God's power. And just as that message was a little bit countercultural, when it was first written to the church in Thessalonica around 50 A.D., 
That message is no less countercultural in our city and in our world today, and yet the message stands. In a culture that idolizes sex and sexual fulfillment, Christian discipleship calls for sexual holiness with the help of God's power. Here's what I want to do. I want to take a minute and just kind of walk through what the text itself says to us, because I don't want to miss it, and because I know this is kind of hard for us, as it was probably kind of hard for the first readers of this letter to kind of digest that message. I want to take just a couple minutes and pay attention to what does the text itself really say and make sure we're understanding it. And then I want to take just as much time this morning and maybe kind of talk a little bit about application. What difference does this make for our lives today? So first of all, let's just kind of walk back through the text and pay attention to what it says. This passage begins with a general call to Christians, a general call to those who are saved by grace through faith and are now following Christ Jesus as Lord. The call is found in verses 1 through 2. Look there with me again, if you would. The call goes like this, the general call. Finally then, brothers... And why does he say finally if we're only halfway through the letter? The word finally there is just kind of a transitional word, right? Sometimes you've been at, at, at church before maybe and you've heard the preacher say, now finally in conclusion, and then he preaches for another 20 minutes. I try really hard not to do that to you. Um, some people think maybe Paul kind of preached like some preachers do today and just kind of like, okay, this is my last point. And then like 20 minutes later, he's still going, right? I, I don't think that's what it is. I think it's just kind of a transitional word, but it's a transitional word that's important here because he's transitioning from kind of describing what he's been saying about his own ministry or their own ministry with the mission, the way that the missionary team ministered there. There's a transition now after the prayer that Michael Van Heist led us in looking at last week, the prayer which concludes with a, which kind of crescendos at the end of verse of chapter three, verse 13, with a prayer that God would establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. So there's a transition from that prayer for holiness to now exhortations for holy living. An important transition right here in the middle of this letter. And we'll be looking at different exhortations, different callings, different aspects of our calling to follow Jesus in different aspects of our lives in the weeks to come. But, but so this general call comes, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you. You hear the urgency of it, right? We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Now pause there for one moment. Did you realize that as a Christian, there is a way that you ought to walk? Some of you are like, but I believe in grace. I know. Me too. Paul believes in grace also. He wrote a lot about the grace of God. And the doctrines that we hold dear as Christians, like being saved by grace alone, through faith alone. I mean, we dig these doctrines right out of the pages of Paul's letters. And yet right here in one of his letters, he demonstrates that he also believes just as strongly as he believes in God's grace and in the forgiveness of our sins He believes that there is a way you ought to walk as a follower of Jesus Christ. Did you notice that there is a way we ought to walk? And let's dig in further here. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So, does, does the missionary team want the church to just kind of remain where they are? No. 
The language is not just stay where you are with respect to following Jesus. The language is just as you have begun following Jesus, follow him more and more closely. You see, learning whole, see, holiness in the Christian life is learned. Walking in the way of Jesus is something we grow in and increase in over time, which should be profoundly encouraging to stumbling saints like me. It should be profoundly encouraging that if we look at our lives and we say, I don't think I'm all the way there yet, the New Testament says, of course. And the Holy Spirit says to us, that's why I've put things like 1 Thessalonians 4.1 in your Bible. Because just as you have begun following Jesus as your Lord, so you should continue following Him, not just at the level you're at now, not just to the depth with which you're following Him now, not just with the closeness with which you're walking with Him now, but the goal is that you keep walking with Him more and more. And the picture that the picture that the New Testament uses over and over, the picture that's used here in chapter 4, verse 1, for following Jesus is not a picture of long jumping. It's a picture of walking one step at a time. And so just kind of pause here with me for one moment on this issue of the general call. The general call to walk in a way that is following Jesus more and more closely over time. And I just encourage you to ask yourself, if you're a follower of Jesus, what, in what ways do you need to follow Jesus more and more closely in the summer of 2021? In what ways do you need to follow Jesus, not just the way you have been, but more and more closely in the summer of 2021. And we're going to talk today specifically about sexual purity and sexual holiness, but we need to realize that's not all that the Lord has for us when it comes to walking with Jesus and following Him, right? If you just kind of skim along in the passage past what Lisa read earlier, you'll notice that in verse 9 there's this issue of now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write. So there's this issue of how we treat other Christians, If you follow along a little bit further, you'll run into things like, 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 uh, like working with your hands. Following Jesus has something to do with the day you do your day job, Monday through Friday, not just with the way you sing songs on Sunday. If you follow down a little bit further into verse 12, you'll see that following Jesus has to do with walking properly before outsiders, it has to do with the way that we interact with our neighbors in the community around us. So even though we're talking in a particular way about sexual holiness and sexual purity, it's good to begin where this passage begins. There is a holistic picture of what it means to follow Jesus with all of our life. Not just one slice of it. I, I, I'm... I was thinking this week about a story that I read in um, Jackie Hill Perry's book, which is called Gay Girl, Good God. Um, it tells her testimony of how she lived a gay lifestyle as a lesbian and, um, and then how she became a believer, how she came to Christ and how the grace of God transformed her life. In profound ways. And as she's sharing her own personal narrative of how meeting Jesus and following Jesus changed her life. She's sharing about uh, kind of one of the earlier phases in her own journey of discipleship. And because sexual sin had, be, had been such a, a deep and important part of her personal identity and her personal story. She was wrestling a lot in that in that part of her life uh, with what it meant to walk with Jesus and what it meant to follow him. And then she shares a story of a conversation that she remembers years later having with her mentor who was named Santoria. A woman in her church that was mentoring her and helping her grow. And her mentor said to her, Jackie... 
homosexuality is not your only issue. She says, whether it's homosexuality or pride or fear or anger or laziness, there is more than one sin in you that needs to be overcome. And so before we kind of zoom in and talk specifically about temptations towards sexual sins, and before we zoom in and talk about sexual holiness, let's pay attention to the wisdom that Jackie's mentor, Santoria, was sharing with her. This wisdom, there's probably more than one sin in your life. There's probably more than one issue that the Lord is getting at. And so what does it look like for you here in the summer of 2021? To follow Jesus, not just kind of the way you have been, but more and more closely. That's the general call that we find in this passage. And then this passage brings us face to face with a more specific call. The more specific call begins in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Instead of following what your culture has taught you. Stay away. Keep keep yourself from indulging in the same things that your neighbors indulge in. Stay away. Abstain from sexual immorality. And that word sexual immorality there in verse 3 is a word that can mean a whole wide variety of things. As in the English language, the Greek language that this letter was originally written in has a lot of different vocabulary words that can relate to different kinds of sexual sin, whether homosexual or heterosexual, uh, whether kind of in the flesh physical sins or kind of mental and imagined sins and so on and so forth. The, The Greek language has a variety of terms that could be used, but This passage here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3 uses the word porneia. Coincidentally, doesn't prove anything, but coincidentally you will recognize the root from which we get the word porn in English. It doesn't prove anything, but in the Greek language that word porneia refer, it was kind of one of the broadest categories Kind of any kind of activity that is morally wrong related to your sexual life. And Paul picks up this very general term to say, whatever is going on in your life that relates to immorality with with respect to sexual purity, stay away from it. Don't indulge in it. Stay away. Away from it. And the passage continues. Why? That each, or continues to describe that. That each one of you know how to control his own body. So there's this, in holiness and honor, so there's this personal dimension of honoring Christ. But then in verse 5, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So now there's this vertical dimension of our sexual holiness. It has to do with our relationship with the Lord. And then the beginning of verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. There are social dimensions, social implications to how we live our own sexual lives. It's not just an issue of personal choice, Paul is saying. So there's the general call here, walk in a way that pleases God more and more. And then there's the more specific call, stay away from sexual sin. And then there's, there are reasons that are given here. I'm just going to run through them very quickly and then we'll kind of jump toward application. But the reasons that are given in this passage are interesting. The end of verse 6, why should we stay away from sexual sin? For one thing, because of the future judgment of Christ. The end of verse 6. Because the Lord is an avenger. Did you know he was in the Marvel movies? (laughs) It means something like that. He cares about justice. And his justice and judgment are coming. 
I'm going to say more about that in a few minutes. So let's kind of just kind of hit pause on that idea and we'll come back to it. The Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. And then verse 7, here's another reason why we should avoid sexual immorality. Not only because of the future judgment of Christ, but also because of the past calling of God toward holiness and honor in your life. God has a purposeful design for your life. He has a purposeful design in sexuality. The Bible tells us a very different story than our culture tells us about sexual fulfillment. Our culture's story about sex treats sex as if it's just kind of a recreational habit. The storyline of the Bible treats sex as actually something far greater than just a recreational habit. It treats sex as part of God's good design for two people becoming one flesh. For one man, one woman becoming one with one another. From Genesis chapter 2, we get this very positive view of sex, which actually is much higher than our culture's casual view of sex as just some kind of recreation. But the Bible not only tells us that sex is this good thing, it also tells us that sex is a fallen thing in the world we live in right now. And how many of us have experienced that personally? How many of us are carrying around baggage, wounds, grief? Sex is beautiful and good. It's also fallen and broken. And one of the reasons why Paul and the missionary team, one of the reasons why God through his spirit is challenging us to abstain from porneia, from whatever kinds of immorality relate to our sexual holiness, one of the reasons is because God designed you for something more than that. God designed us for something more than that. God has a design for holiness and honor to be lived out, whether by the single brothers and sisters or by the married brothers and sisters, whether by those who were married and now widowed or married and now divorced or by those who are drawing near to their 50th wedding anniversary. God has a design for holiness and honor. And he's called us to something more than our culture has in mind when it thinks about sex. But there's one final reason that the passage gives for why we should abstain from porneia. The, f- the final reason that this passage gives us in verse 8 is because of the, not only the future judgments of Christ and not only because of the past calling of God, but also because of the present power of God's Spirit. You notice how he ends this. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not human teaching, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Well, that's what the passage says. Now, what do we do with it? What do we do with this teaching that we have here in God's word? Very often in my own life, when I've needed to make progress, that more and more dimension of walking with Jesus and following him that we were talking about a minute ago, when when I need to make progress in that more and more dimension of following Jesus, one of the primary tools that I've learned to use in my life is this book. Just finding strategic passages that speak to the things I'm wrestling. Finding strategic passages that speak to the lies I'm believing. Finding strategic passages that cast a bigger and better vision than the small and fallen visions that I want to absorb from the culture around me. And so one of the ways that I've learned in my own life, one of the best tools that I have in learning to walk more and more closely with Jesus is just getting back into this book and not just kind of reading it mindlessly, but digging into specific verses as if they are weapons for the battle 
of the battles of the flesh that I need to fight this week. And I want to, I want to just take a couple of minutes here and show how this passage that we're looking at, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 1 through 8, how it gives us some specific tools with which we can resist the schemes of the enemy with which we can resist the desires of the flesh, with which we can find a better vision than the vision our world around us is pitching to us. I want to show you seven, seven ways that this passage kind of helps us to resist lies that we're going to be tempted to believe about sexual immorality. One lie that we're tempted to believe about sexual morality is the lie that Jesus wants us to do just whatever makes us happy. In our culture today, this is a very common idea. The most loving thing you can do for somebody is just let them do whatever makes them happy. Never mind that that doesn't always work out very well. And never mind all of the collateral damage that we've all experienced in our own lives when other people were just trying to do what made them happy. But this passage gives us a different vision. It tells us as people who are following Christ that instead of just saying Jesus wants me to do whatever makes me happy, we realize in verse 1, the Lord Jesus Christ has, a, there is a way that we ought to walk. Another lie that we might be tempted to believe about sexual immorality is the lie that says, I can't help it. Shorthand street version of this, man's got needs. I got these hormones. I've got these desires. I've got this feeling somewhere deep inside of me. I can't help it. But notice how the truth of God's word equips us to resist that half truth. There is a way that each one of you can learn more and more. Maybe you've begun walking in this path and there's a more and more related to this. But there is a way that you can learn to walk in self-control. Not just giving in to the impulses of your body, but walking in self-control. I had a conversation with a brother in this church family this week. And he was sharing with me a happy report about how somebody else in this church family had just told him, that this other guy had told him, I, I, just, I haven't looked at porn in a long time. And my friend, my brother in this church family said, since I heard that, it was like, you know, it was, it was like something changed. It was like I realized I don't have to do that anymore myself either. We can learn self-control. We don't expect sinless perfection of one another, but we do expect that we can learn self-control, contrary to the lie that says, ah, you can't help it. You, you want what you want. Another lie that we can be tempted to believe about sexual morality is this lie that says, if my neighbors think it's okay, then it must be okay. But notice how God's Spirit through His Word equips us to resist that specifically. There's a way you ought to walk which is different than walking in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, the people from various cultural backgrounds around us. Not in the passion of the Gentiles who do not know God. It's a falsehood. It's a lie. It's a deception. To believe that if all my neighbors think it's okay, then it must be okay. Another lie that we can be tempted to believe is the lie that says, look, nobody's going to get hurt. But once again, haven't we all seen that to be just plain false? And God's word itself reminds us that when we sin in sexual immorality, we sin not only against ourselves and our consciences, and the New Testament says against our own bodies. I don't even fully understand what that means. We sin not only against ourselves, but we, we wrong our neighbor. We wrong others in the process of pursuing sexual immorality. Our culture has forgotten 
or ignores or suppresses that fact, but it's still true. Another deception we can believe about sexual morality is to believe the lie that says it's no big deal. And yet notice what 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 6 warns us. The Lord Jesus is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Now, some of you are not used to hearing God's word warn you. In fact, there was like a whole dimension of ways that pastors were taught for the last 40 years, since somewhere around 1980 or so. And pastors were taught people don't want to be warned about things. They don't like hearing about judgment. So try to minimize that stuff. I can't help but wonder if that's been part of what's led the church into so much mess. The facts are according to God's word. So like you can disagree with me and my views of God if you want. But I'm just telling you what this book says. I'm telling you what Christians have believed for 2,000 years. I'm telling you what God's people have believed ever since God began revealing himself to us in love. Is that the Lord is an avenger. There is a judgment coming and you're like, wait, but grace, I know, grace. And yet the same Bible that teaches us about being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, also teaches us that some people will enter the kingdom of God as through flames. 1 Corinthians 3.15. That's another one of those things. I don't even know what that means. But I know it means this, there is real justice, real judgment coming, even for those of us who are saved by grace and through faith. And it's given to us here as a warning, as something that we should hold with gravitas and say, that should motivate me. Another deception we can believe is not only to believe the lie that it's no big deal, but perhaps also to believe the the lie that God is keeping me from fulfillment. If God loved me, he would let me get fulfillment. But here's the thing. This passage, like the pages of Scripture together, are not just about keeping you away from bad stuff. It's about keeping you for good stuff. That's the holiness and the honor of God's design for your life. That holiness, that honor that God has designed for your life is better than gratification in the flesh. God's word dares to say in the midst of cultures that idolize sex and sexual fulfillment. And one final lie that we can be tempted to believe is the lie that it's all hopeless. I failed before. I'm going to fail again. What's the point of even resisting we reason? Of course, this can show up with all kinds of sin, whether it's kind of blowing up in anger with our words or whether it's kind of neglecting other people. Whether it's sins of greed or sins of pornea. Whatever the case may be, we can be tempted to believe because I've sinned in the past, there's no more and more available for me today. There's no progress that's possible. And yet God's word tells us that it reminds us the Holy Spirit lives within you, believer. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, let me just ask you, do you believe that this is true, that the Spirit of God lives within you today? And that His power is at work within you in the present tense, leading you in the path of holiness? It's not hopeless. In fact, to the contrary, The pursuit of holiness with the help of God's own spirit within us is a profoundly hope-filled adventure that the Lord calls us on. I've shared this story before, but I'll share it once again here. One last picture I want to share with you. Um, One day I ran into a friend of mine who was walking out of um, Wheaton College's library. He was walking out of the library there. I ran into him. 
Um, I'd known him for some time. I think uh, we were both in graduate school in that era. My friend uh, was a Christian, a follower of Jesus. He was recently married. He was pursuing, hoping to be a part of Christian ministry in the future. And I was excited to see him and I greeted him. How are you? And as soon as he looked up and looked me in the eyes, I could see something weighty was on his heart. His eyes were bloodshot. You know, you just see the redness around somebody's eyes and you just know, my friend's been crying. So I asked him what was going on. And he went on to explain how for some amount of time in his own life, he had been resisting temptations toward pornography despite significant addiction to pornography in the past. And throughout his young married life, he'd resisted that temptation until that very morning. And he confessed to me very openly right there on that sidewalk how he had sinned against God and his wife. He expressed his fears, the depths of his regret, his concerns about how this would harm his relationship with his wife, even to some degree concerns that he wasn't really a Christian at all. And there on that sidewalk, I think that the Lord just led me to say three things to my brother very simply. I just told him, listen, first of all, it's more common than you realize. And I said that because when we fall into sexual sins, the enemy will be there quickly trying to convince us that we need to keep that hidden. That we need to isolate ourselves. We need to put ourselves in some kind of self-imposed exile. We need to stay away from other believers. And if we're around them, we better keep this silent. Nobody else would really understand. And so I told him, listen, brother, this is more common than you realize. And secondly, I told him, this is more serious than you realize. And you say, how cruel is that to tell somebody it's more serious than he realizes? Well, he's crying his eyeballs out in front of you. Here's the thing. Very often in our initial experience of guilt, we're still just focused selfishly on how this is going to impact me. We're still just considering the negative consequences and we're not even considering the sin that this is before God or the way this might affect other people. And so I told him, listen, this is more common than you realize. It's real sin. And so it's more serious than you realize. But then I also told him, there's also far more grace than you realize. Which is the origin of that phrase that I repeat so often that you get sick of hearing it. But there really is, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, there really is far more hope than you realize. Because there is far more grace than you realize. As serious as our sins are against God, as weighty as they are, as deep as those stains go... Our God in love sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to bear for us all of the guilt. To take it away. To remove God's wrath. So that we can stand today cleansed and free, forgiven, and accepted in the family of God forevermore. Not because sexual sin isn't that big of a deal like our culture tells us. But because the redeeming work of Christ really is that powerful as the word of God tells us. So what is the pathway of discipleship look like? In a culture that idolizes sex, Christian discipleship calls for sexual holiness by God's power which we experience through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. At this time, I want to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward. And I don't know if uh, Elizabeth or Matt is coming up to play music as well. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. We're going to participate in this family meal 
which is a feast ordained by our Lord Jesus Christ himself as a reminder of his rich grace toward us. If you're here with us and you're not following Jesus, I want to thank you for sticking with me through a tough topic and a a heavy passage. Thanks for sticking with us. And I hope we can continue the conversation about some of these things in a variety of ways. I don't pretend that these things are easy. I don't pretend that these are issues that most of us will wrestle through overnight. I hope that we can continue this conversation over time. If you're here today and you're not following Jesus, we'll ask you just to kind of hang out where you are before until we close with one last song here in a minute. The reason we ask you to stay where you are is because taking the Lord's Supper is a sign of ongoing faith in Jesus. And so if you aren't following Jesus, you can just hang out where you are. But we'd also just love to say, like even today... Like even right now, we would love to invite you to come and be cleansed and find freedom, true freedom, in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now at this time, uh, we are going to take the Lord's Supper together. I also want to point out that there's going to be an opportunity for you to receive prayer And so you can do that before you come and take the elements. You can do that after you take the bread and the cup. You can just run back there right away. You can run back there at some point during the last song. But there are going to be a few people available kind of behind those glass doors in the back room over there. You can go back there and receive prayer. You can just go back there and say, I just kind of want to be a part of the prayer team myself today. And I just want to join others in praying about these things. And so that room back there is available for prayer even now. And at this time, I'd like to invite all who live by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us, to come and take the bread and the cup in glad-hearted remembrance of our great Redeemer. You may come.